0: Good morning. As Carlos said, my name is Paul Ramsey. I know uh, I know many of you, but there's a number of you I haven't met. Uh, we've been at Sojourn Galleria for the past two months, which is crazy because uh, I've been a member, I had been a member at Sojourn Heights for six years and my wife was here for I think seven and a half. She was here when Sojourn Heights was planted. So uh, it's a joy to be back with you. Um, joy to be preaching God's word. Happy Father's Day. Uh, if you're a father in the room. Uh, if you have a father in the room, Happy Father's Day! Uh, what a fun day of celebration! It's my second Father's Day. Uh, we have a 16-month-old, and she is an absolute joy, and so it's a lot of fun. She got me. She got me a book this morning. Uh, something I forget. Something about 10 things that a dad should know about his daughter. I don't know. It was a great, it's a, It looked like a great book. Can't wait to read it. Um, but Happy Father's Day! And I also say that with a caveat. You know, I know. I know many of you in here, and I know that a few of you. Uh, Personally, I know that, that, that today's kind of a hard day for you. Um, and so whether I know that or whether I don't, I want you to know that I uh, I and a number of us have been praying for you, um, if not by name, then in spirit. Uh, and I hope that the God of comfort meets you today um, in, in what might be a hard day for you. Uh, but yes, happy Father's Day. It's exciting. And I think it's fitting, actually. Um, as we open the the, the chapter Today, 2 Peter chapter 2, you heard it read, and I had the entire chapter read uh, because I wanted you to hear it. Uh, it's a pretty intense chapter. I'll be focusing, zooming in on the first few verses and then doing a flyby of the rest. Um, and I would love for you guys, uh, just, I just wanted you to hear it so that you could have fodder for your study this week. Um, but it's, it's particularly fitting, I think, on Father's Day because in, uh, uh, in this chapter, we hear Peter really um, acting as a father uh, to his church who really cares deeply about the purity and safety of his church. Uh, he cares deeply that false teachers have come in to try to to, to lead away uh, part of his family. And so um, we get kind of uh, a, a very sober-minded, uh, very clear and vivid uh, passage in our text today. Um, and it is a joy to be with you to preach the gospel. Every time we open the Bible, we, we know that we're participating in what God's doing uh, in our midst and really in our culture around us as we open God's word and come to it. We know that it doesn't return void. Uh, and so hopefully uh, it's my goal that each of you is reminded of the gospel. Um, and if you're here for the first time, if you're visiting from out of town, uh, welcome to uh, one of the more difficult chapters in the Bible um, but I'm so glad that you're here. It's a beautiful chapter, and there's some beautiful truth that, that I pray that God has for us this morning. Second Peter is a letter um, that, that's the last writing that we have from the Apostle Peter. Uh, in, uh, in the early church, Peter was the, the first among the apostles, the one who Christ looked at and said, It's on this rock, on Peter, that I will build my church. Uh, And so Peter had devoted his whole life to ministry. It wasn't without, it was kind of a rocky road of ministry. It wasn't perfect, but he devoted his life to building up the church, to building a foundation for the church throughout this age. Um, And uh, he had just heard chapter 1, verse 14 says, uh, uh, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, I will make sure to teach you these things so that you can recall them when I'm gone. Jesus had made it clear to Peter that he didn't have much longer uh, in this earthly body. And so these are the last words. These are kind of Peter's last will and testament, so to speak, um, as he writes to his church. Um, and, it's a, and sure enough, uh, probably likely about a year or two after he wrote this letter, he was crucified, uh, martyred for his faith in Jesus because he wouldn't renounce Jesus. And when he was crucified, uh, that they, they announced his sentence of crucifixion. As, as, he was, as, as he was walked up to his crucifixion, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the style of my Savior. And so crucify me upside down, if you would. And so he was crucified upside down because he didn't count himself worthy to share the honor of a crucifixion like that of Jesus. It's an intense story and it's a beautiful story, um, uh, although sometimes hard to, to recount. Uh, and, and these are the final words that we have from the Apostle Peter. And what does he say? He points his people again and again to the gospel, the true gospel. And here uh, in chapter two, he calls out those who teach falsely, threatening the purity of the church, and while Peter could have said, "Hey, this is," he could have just preached the true gospel and said, "Hey, keep to this and avoid everything else." He did probably what a good father would do, really, um, like like you would tell your kids, "Hey, don't accept candy from strangers at the park." Uh, Peter says, "Here's some real temptations. Here's some real dangers that are out there, and I want you to know that they are coming so that you can avoid them." And so, as we look into uh, chapter two this morning. I want to look at three uh, main points. First, what is the church? I want to answer briefly, uh, what is the church? Uh, Second, we're going to look at why the question, why are false teachers so dangerous? And third, we're going to look at how then we can live in the way of Christ with any confidence at all. Um, The the lion's share of our time will be in point two, but let's begin. In in order to understand the perspective in which Peter sees false teachers, um, I think it's important for us to understand what the church is. Uh, uh, At at Sojourn we speak of the church in this way We say the church is not a building uh, It's a people It's not an event to attend It's a family to belong to And this is very much how the early church understood church It's very much how Peter understood it How the other apostles understood it The story of the gospel that really created the church Begins in the Old Testament With the creation of all things God, the Father, Son, and Spirit Triune, perfect in His holiness Perfect in His community uh, Didn't have to create anything He had no desire that needed to be met outside of himself, but out of his good pleasure, he decided to create things. He created this beautiful creation with the earth, the creatures, everything in it. He created man and woman uh, as the crown of his creation, his image bearers, to share in his glory, share in his perfection, and in his community, uh, and to cover the face of the earth with his image. Uh, And it was a beautiful creation. One day, however, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, were tempted by Satan to distrust God, and they acted on this temptation which broke their relationship with him. In the name of freedom, so they thought, they chose sin, which backfired on them because it turned out to bring them into slavery, enslaving them and all humankind, including you and me, after them uh, to sin. And worst of all, the relationship that they shared with God, which was once perfect, was now marred forever. The rest of the Old Testament, though, rather than telling the story of God ending things and starting over, uh, it tells the story of God's plan to restore and renew this creation with Uh, This relationship that he had with humanity and all of creation. And God's solution required that his people would be made holy again. That is, that they would be made essentially sinless, blemishless, so that they could be in the presence of God. Set apart is another definition for the word holy. Set apart from all that is wicked because of the sin that they had brought upon themselves And this plan of redemption that God set forth wasn't God basically saying, you know, tell you what, we got to go to plan B. My people became unholy, so I guess I'm just going to have to deal with unholy people. No, his plan was to make them holy once more. But it was impossible for humans to make themselves holy. And so what did God do? He did it for us. The whole story of the Bible builds up to this point where God's plan reaches its fulfillment. Jesus Christ was born a man, fully God, fully man, and he died a death that cleansed us and saved us from our sins. In dying on the cross, God ransomed us out of our slavery to sin, purchasing us from slavery at the cost of his life, the highest price he could pay. And his sacrifice cleansed us from our sins so that we could truly be in the presence of God. And Peter taught us in his first letter, in 1 Peter, that it's more than that. It's more, God made it more than possible, more than just possible for us to approach him. He, what God was doing in salvation was creating us into a dwelling place for himself. That we are now the temple of God in whom God dwells and it is God's dwelling with us by the power of the spirit that we have the power and the ability to live lives pleasing, holy, blameless, and faithful to him. And so the church, what is the church? The church is called to be a holy, beautiful place of encouragement and empowerment. We're called to be the salt and light that flavors and brightens this dark world. First Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, Peter says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God expects his church to be holy. And Jesus established his church on the foundations of the apostles. Right, which empowered holy living through teaching faithfulness and fruitfulness and growth. So the church, in other words, has always seen itself this way, and Sojourn seeks to be this kind of church that, uh, that we would be great lovers of people, that if we closed our doors, that the neighborhood around us would miss us, that, that we would be the kind of place that the broken and hurting know that they can come to have their needs met. In a world that condemns and belittles, we want to be a place where people are welcomed and empowered and loved. In the early church, this was called the way. Peter uses this phrase twice in this passage, verses 2 and 21. God's plan for the world is not just a bunch of people who believe in Jesus living all over the place. God's plan for the world is a community of people bought by the price of Christ's life and brought into the same people Worshiping him together, living the very way that Christ himself lived in humility and sacrifice, bold but gentle and loving all. This is the kind of community that Christ died to purchase. Uh, Carlos and I were talking this week uh, and the thought was kind of floating around. Why is it uh, that we love reclaimed stuff? My mom ordered this bag, uh, this suitcase offline, online. Uh, and uh, it was this bag that was made out of re- reclaimed leather from Southwest Airlines plane seats. Um, and, it was this, and it was a really, really neat-looking bag, and my mom was thrilled about it. Um, she loves reclaimed stuff, and I wish that she knew why she loved reclaimed stuff so much. I mean, we could say the same thing about antique vehicles. You know, why is it that we, pri- we prize a, a, a restored 1950s pickup? to a brand new pickup off the lot? Um, Why is it that a ding in an antique is more devastating uh, to at least some of us than a ding in a new uh, shiny uh, product? I think that the reason we love reclaimed stuff is because that's the God that we worship. Our God is a God of reclamation, right? God doesn't replace the people of God. He renovates us. He doesn't get rid of us to create new ones. He makes us new from the inside out. God is a God of redemption. And the church, uh, the church is a beautifully restored people of God who have been made holy by the cleansing blood of Jesus who are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. That's a long definition of the church, but I think it's important. That is what the church is supposed to be. There are those who would have it otherwise though. Holiness is unnatural, as Cole said last week. Holiness requires change, and there are some who don't want to change. And sometimes those people, rather than outright rejecting God and continuing in their lives without Him, try to infiltrate the church and turn the church into what they want it to be and turn God into who they want God to be. And according to Peter, this is particularly offensive to God, and it's particularly dangerous. False teachers and false teaching was very dangerous back then, and it is absolutely as dangerous And so let's look at what Peter says. Point two, why is false teaching so dangerous? What is the threat of false teaching? I'm gonna go through this. First thing I wanna look at under this uh, header is what are false teachers? Let me read verses one through three. What are false teachers? Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter gives a pretty vivid description of the people he's describing here. Uh, And I want to make four observations that we can make. Uh, There's many more that we could make, but I want to make just four. First, the first observation that we can make about these false teachers is simply that they're a reality throughout the Bible. Right, Peter points out in verse 1 that there will be false teachers who arise within the church just as there were false prophets throughout the Old Testament. He doesn't say they might come up. He says they will be among you. False teachers are not a possibility. They're a reality. Uh, and they always have been. In fact, can you think of the first example of a false teacher in the Bible? Satan, very good. Yes, Satan is the first false teacher in the Bible. Uh, The very existence of sin in the world came as a result of false teaching. In the Garden of Eden, Satan came to Adam and Eve as a smooth-talking teacher who was just trying to help them understand God's word. And he seemed to be particularly cared for their well-being and especially their happiness. But his words were deadly because they entertained the false teaching of Satan. Adam and Eve fell, and since then, all of creation has been broken. False teachers have been dangerous and they have been a reality from the very beginning. Satan was there in the Garden of Eden. False prophets have been throughout the Old Testament and false teachers, even now, 2,000 years after Peter wrote this, we see a history of false teachers having arisen from within the church. They are a reality. The second thing, a second observation very briefly that we can make about false teachers is that they come from within God's people. Uh, Peter is not talking about people who come from without, but people who rise up from within. Verse one, false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. While uh, other parts of the Bible are devoted to talking about atheist teachers or secular teachers or teachers of other religions, that's not what Peter's talking about in this passage. Peter's talking here about people who profess to be Christians, but who are leading people astray from within the church. The third thing we, we see about these false teachers is that they bring in their heresies secretly. Heresy is a word that means non-orthodox teaching, non-accepted, non-widely accepted teaching. And in the early church, heresies referred to actual teachings, and they also referred to groups of people. Uh, And the way that Peter describes these false teachers makes it sound like these are awful people who do terrible things, um, who everyone should see. Obviously, these are not people we want to be associated with. Obviously, we don't want to be engaging in the things that are engaged in. He describes them like I just read, verses 1 through 3. He goes on. These teachers indulge in the lust of defiling passion. They blaspheme. They speak evil against. They curse spiritual powers. They blaspheme about matters of which they're ignorant. They're irrational animals, eyes full of adultery. They're insatiable for sin. He goes on and on and on about these false teachers. It almost seems like Peter's trying to transport us into this just kind of red light district at midnight. It's like he's trying to trans transport us into a brothel to see, look around, look at all these people who you should obviously see are destructive. It's like that movie scene almost when, you know, in the action movie, uh, when, you know, the plot's moving along and then the music changes, the lights dim a little bit, you get into this room with people with, you know, slick back hair and whatever else. I don't know. Uh, If you have slick back hair, you look great. But, um, you know, you can tell that the director is trying to communicate. This is a room of people. This is a scene that you're not supposed to approve of, right? Um, It's almost like Peter is doing that when he describes these false teachers. But he doesn't say that. He says they bring in their heresies secretly. Uh, He says that, uh, in other words, their teaching makes its way into the church below the radar in a way that's not obvious to all, just like Satan uh, in the Garden of Eden, was, was kind of a smooth talker, convincing Adam and Eve that he knew what was best for them, uh, that false teachers, you know, you know, Peter's teaching that the false teachers are craftily sneaking their message in. The Apostle Paul in Colossians warns the Colossian church about false teachers, and he says this. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. All right? False teachers use plausible arguments that sound appealing, uh, which makes them Easy to slip in secretly. As one commentator put it, a theological don, a theological kind of bigwig can defend fornication in certain circumstances as a form of charity. In other words, a particularly theologically astute false teacher can make adultery sound like charity. Words can be manipulated. Words are absolutely important. The fact that these false teachers slip things in secretly doesn't mean that they're doing so quietly. In fact, Peter describes them as bold and willful. Verse 10, they despise authority. They speak in loud boasts of folly. Verse 18, so while they bring in these heresies secretly, they're bringing them in boldly and sometimes loudly. And so destructively, they are craftily trying to infiltrate and lead people astray within the church. The fourth uh, and last quality about false teachers that we see is that they will be known by their lifestyles, which will be marked primarily by two things, sensuality and greed. They live their lives for sex and money. Verse two, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. It's interesting that the first thing that Peter jumps to here is sensuality. Just like Paul in Romans begins his kind of universal indictment of mankind with sexual sin, uh, Peter jumps straight to sexual sin, and it's not, It's not surprising. Uh, In the early church, all of these heretical groups, many of the heretical groups in the early church were known for their uh, sexual deviance. They had uh, religious ceremonies that were very sexually charged, orgies, a lot of polygamy and and sacrificial ceremonies. Uh, uh, Even modern-day cults, you probably have heard many stories like this. To give two examples, uh, there's a guy named David Koresh uh, who was a leader of a Christian offshoot offshoot sect called the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas. Um, And he taught, in one of his teachings, spiritual weddings, which allowed him to temporarily marry women uh, who were followers of his of any age uh, and allowed him to to go to bed with them. Jim Jones is another cult leader, um, the guy who the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, comes from. He did committed mass suicide with 900 or so of his followers as they were trying to catch the Haley vomit into heaven. Or Haley, whatever you call it, Haley Bopp, comet. And Jim Jones, the leader of this sect, committed adultery with a number of women in his church. He eventually started referring to himself as the father of all to blur the lines between families so that he could have whatever woman he wanted. So sexual sin, sensuality, is a characteristic of false teachers. The second characteristic is greed, verse three. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words, looking for their own gain. Uh, you will be exploited by these false teachers, and they'll make you think that what they're asking for is normal. Uh, a simple example of this is what's called the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. Uh, there's a pastor named John Piper who says the only thing wrong with the prosperity gospel is their eschatology, their, their timeline uh, for things. Uh, God does promise prosperity and health and wealth, just not yet. Um, but the the prosperity gospel Uh, teaches that you can have your best life now. And often these prosperity gospel ministries will teach something along the lines of of that you should sow a seed so that God can multiply it, right? And what they do is they say things like, you should sow a seed so that God might bless you. And then they equate that seed with a dollar amount that you should give to their ministry. Um, It's about as bold as you can get. And it happens. You probably see it on TV um, here in Houston we don't have cable and half you know, 15 of the Christian channels do similar things like this. The second question under point two is, is, is why? So we looked at some characteristics of false teachers. Why though are false teachers so dangerous? In chapter one, verse one, we see that, uh, that, that Peter addresses his, letters, his letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and our savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter is not writing this letter to false teachers. His audience is not the false teachers themselves. In fact, from how he describes them, he could have written them a letter. They probably wouldn't have read it or heeded it. His audience is the Christians uh, so that they might know what's going on. And as he writes, uh, we see a couple of his chief concerns right there in verse 2. Peter says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Because false teachers will lead many astray, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In other words, the outside world will be looking on to the Christian church and making accusations and blaspheming against the Christian church. And because these false teachers are leading people astray, outsiders are gonna look and see, hey, that person's a Christian. They're doing this. That person's a Christian. They're, hy- they're hypocrites. They're just like everyone else. They're no different from the world. And this is particularly painful for Peter, right? Because he knows that the way of truth is Christ's design for reaching a lost world. In his first letter, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9, Peter calls the church a royal priesthood, that the church is this mediator between God and the rest of the world. And he says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he instructs them to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a huge statement uh, from 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter essentially says this, When the world speaks evil against you, When the world blasphemes you, they will see your good works and realize the foolishness of their words and glorify God. Here in 2 Peter 2, Peter laments that because these false teachers have been leading people astray, this is not what the outside world is is seeing. But the the witness of the church is damaged. The, The plan of God to reach the world is under threat. And so Peter addresses it head on. To go a bit further, though, one of the reasons that these false teachers are so dangerous is because of the people that they target. Verse 14 says, Peter says, they entice unsteady souls. Then he expands, verse 18. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So the targets of these false teachers are unsteady souls and those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And while all of us, while it's important that all of us are aware of these false teachers and, and, and take heed Uh, for ourselves and for the people around, I think we can see at least two groups of people who are at particular risk of being enticed by false teachers. New converts and second, uprooted or malnourished Christians. First, new converts. Young Christians are those who are often most susceptible to error. And this makes sense to us. Right, the early years of your life are incredibly formative. Parents know this. We refer to young people as impressionable, as malleable. We want to protect our kids. We want to surround them with good influences because we know that the, the experiences that a child has in the early years of their life are incredibly important for their formation and development. And this is true spiritually as well. In the same way that children will listen to adults, whatever the adults say often, Um, Young Christians are often especially thirsty to listen to Christians who appear to be more mature and who are offering to teach them about God, about Jesus, and about the gospel. And it can be very difficult for brand new Christians to discern the difference between truth and almost truth, and sometimes between truth and absolute falsehood. And so in those earliest days when foundations are being laid, uh, wouldn't it make sense for Satan to get in and drop an error here and an error there and try to shake the foundation that this new believer is building up. For example, remember what what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, just a chapter before this. He says that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, which is an incredible promise. Uh, And then he says, therefore, we should make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, steadfastness, and so forth. And then in verse 8, Peter says, if these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talk about an incredible promise, right? If, If making every effort to supplement our faith with all of these things prevents a Christian from being unfruitful, then wouldn't this be an easy first target for Satan to pick in a new convert? Would it make sense for Satan or for false teachers to get in and convince a young Christian, listen, hey, don't you know that your eternity is secure? So you don't have to, it doesn't really matter how you live your life. Don't you know that you don't have to do anything? Of course, it would make sense for that seed to try to be planted. If what Peter says here is true, right, that if that effort is the thing that keeps you from being ineffective or unfruitful, then Satan will do anything he can to convince you that effort is pointless, that effort is unnecessary, that it's optional. Someone. Uh, It talks about the righteous person being like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in due season, that can't be blown to and fro by storms and winds that might come. Satan would love nothing more than to interfere with the growth of a new tree before it can take root and steady itself. It takes time for a tree to grow and mature and to be able to withstand the wind. And that's what false teachers do. They entice those who have barely escaped from the world. Those who just yesterday were living lives of rampant sin and have come to a knowledge of the Lord and the false teachers say, hey, did you know that you can have Jesus and those things too? You don't need to stop. The false teachers do this. They entice unsteady souls. Uh, They entice those who have barely escaped. This is why one of the characteristics of elders, of overseers in the church that the the apostle Paul gives in uh, 1 Timothy 3 is that a man not be a recent convert or else he will be puffed up with conceit. To continue with the image from Psalm 1, it takes time for a tree to grow and grow strong. And I, honestly, I'm in the thick of learning this right now. I'm not ordained as an elder yet. I'm a church planting resident. I'm a young, I'm 28 years old. I've been in vocational ministry for three years. Um, And every sermon, even preaching a sermon right now, the temptation that it is for me to look at the looks on your faces and calculate my self-worth based on that, the temptation is real. Right. The words of encouragement after I preach, it's tempting for me to take those and deposit those in the bank account of self-worth. Build myself up. That temptation is real. When I begin the work week tomorrow, I've already seen emails that that are important that I need to attend to. Um, as the number two guy at Sojourn Galleria, which is a new church plan, it's tempting for me to think that these things that need to get done and these things that you know might not happen if I don't do them, it's easy for me to think that man, the weight of this church, success or failure rests on my shoulders. That's a temptation. There's a lot of details that I could go into there, but I won't uh, suffice it to say that I'm praying for God to help, conti- help me continue to grow deep roots in the word of God, in the strength of God, in the power of God. Um, the qualification of not being a new convert in the list of qualifications for elders is right in line with what Paul's saying here. That there is particular risk of being enticed away by false teachers for those who are new converts. The second group of people that I want to talk about who are at particular risk of being enticed by false teachers um, is uprooted or malnourished Christians. Still continuing on with the Psalm 1 tree metaphor. I'll explain this with a few examples. Times of travel or transition, times of crisis, seasons of spiritual drought can leave people, uh, even mature, uh, believing, seasoned Christians in a place of instability and susceptibility to enticements of false teaching and sin. Right? being uprooted from one city to another, being tra- and travel in between place to place, changing church communities, changing social networks. Right? Our, our hunger for community, being mal- malnourished in the community that God intends for us can cause us to be thirsty and try to get community of any kind, even if illicit. Right? Airports all across the world have become, in recent years, hotbeds for prostitution and human trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, in Houston, Brothels, uh, predominantly massage parlors, illicit massage parlors, the, the most frequent hours, uh, the highest cu- customer volume at these, at these brothels uh, are between the hours of 7 and 9 in the morning and 4 to 6 in the afternoon when men are going to work and coming home from work. Times of crisis like death or traumatic injury in the family, loss of job, personal struggle can leave you in need of relief, desiring relief, which w- might, would cause you to be willing to entertain things that you would normally avoid. Seasons of spiritual drought during which it's hard to read God's word, hard to pray to God, make it difficult increasingly to discern what's acceptable and what's not. And so you start to toe the line, maybe even stepping over the line a few times just to see how bad it is. False teachers are dangerous because they target the weak. Like wolves hunting sheep, they don't need to get the strong sheep. They just need to eat. And so they pick the young. They pick those who are are isolated on the fringes. Not only, though, are false teachers dangerous because of the people they target, but possibly the greatest danger of false teaching is that at the heart of it, false teachers tell us what we want to hear. When we look at the text, what is it that these false teachers were preaching? Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So, what were these false teachers teaching? They're teaching freedom. And this is something we all want, right? The false teachers were teaching a freedom that says you can have whatever you want, right? You want sex? Just do these things and then it'll be okay. You want money? Yeah, go for it. Have it. You want things your way? Take them. You can have your own God. Defining God however you like because you've been through a lot and so you probably know. You can strive for whatever you want. It's not wrong to try to get what you want, right? Creature comforts aren't a good th- or aren't a bad thing. They're actually a good thing. Boys will be boys. We shouldn't hold it against him. Right? You were born that way, so go for it. False teachers will teach a freedom that says you can have whatever you want, and even as Christians, even as Christians, our flesh loves that. The two greatest, greatest temptations for humanity throughout the Bible and throughout human experience are sensuality and greed, sex and money. And beneath those two, really pride the feeling that we deserve those two things. The problem with these false teachers is that they were teaching an unbridled, unbiblical form of freedom, which as it turns out, wasn't freedom at all. Let me clarify what I mean. Uh, A number of commentators point out that these false teachers, they look at the the whole letter and they try to isolate what false teaching Peter was actually addressing. And they narrowed it down, uh, looking at 2 Peter 3, that, that they were teaching, they were twisting the free grace of the Apostle Paul into an excuse for license to commit all kinds of sins. You see, the Apostle Paul thoroughly taught freedom in Christ, He said, you are free in Christ, you are no longer bound to the law which Christ fulfilled, you're no longer bound to sin, so you get to live a life of freedom, you know, living in the free grace that God has offered us. But Paul also teaches the necessity of holiness, the necessity of restraint, the necessity to flee from, from immorality, flee from temptation. And so, those teachings might appear contradictory, and a lot of people took those as confusing. And... So 2 Peter 3, Peter even acknowledges Paul's teaching is confusing. 2 Peter 3, verse 15, uh, Peter says, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. There are some things in those letters that are hard to understand, (laughs) Peter's saying Paul's hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away. With the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You see, God wants us to be free. Uh, God wants us to have freedom. He created us free and He wants us to be free. But the freedom that He created us for is a freedom that has boundaries. The very nature of that freedom is far from being free to sin, we have actually been freed in Christ from sin. The only thing that sin does is enslave. The only thing that sin does is enslave. It multiplies, and like an addiction, sin always demands more and more, never quite satisfying until it overcomes you. And verse 19, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And as he writes, we can hear Peter pleading with his people, pleading with us, do not be deceived by this teaching. To help drive this point home, he gives two metaphors. Verse 17, he says... These, uh, speaking of false teachers, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. A spring without water is a fraud. It's like ordering an iPhone from eBay that doesn't turn on. It's like trying to shoot a gun that doesn't fire. More accurately, it's, it's like trying to use counterfeit money and getting thrown in prison because you're trying to use counterfeit money. Spring without water makes false promises and then disappoints like false teachers. Mists driven by a storm are temporary mists that sock you in, looking ominous, but then with the, the, the earliest sign of wind, they disperse immediately. Peter, in both of these metaphors, illuminates the unsatisfying and ephemeral nature of false teaching. In other words, even if it might seem fun to play with, false teaching will never satisfy, and it will never last. It won't endure. So far in point two, we've looked at what false teachers are. They come from within God's people. They teach their heresies craftily and secretly. They're known by their sensuality and greed. We've looked at why they're so dangerous. They target the weak, and they tell us what we want to hear. And the last thing in point two that I want uh, and and I feel like I need to address comes out of the last point Peter makes uh, about these false teachers in verses 20 through 22. Let me read. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Peter essentially says here that it would have been better for these false teachers to never have committed themselves to Christ than for them to have done so and then turn their back on him as they have. And there's two sobering teachings that this brings up. First, we're looking at a biblical example of someone who has come to know the way of righteousness, words of salvation, someone who has come to know the way of righteousness and then turned away from it. The second thing is we're told that the punishment for those who have turned away will be worse than if they had never known at all. There's a lot that could be said about these two things that I won't say and leave for your personal study. Again, that's a good default. But let me speak briefly to what I believe these mean. And then turn to to give what I believe Peter wants us to take away from these warnings. First, At Sojourn, uh, the leadership of Sojourn believes that God chooses those who will be saved and that Jesus will lose none of whom the Father has chosen. In other words, once chosen by God, a person is never unchosen. This is called election. Uh, And if that's true, then what do we make of this example of someone who has escaped the defilements of this world, someone who Peter says they they have experienced real benefits of salvation and who has turned away and lost those benefits. Let me say this carefully. It appears that according to this teaching, there are people who experience the very real benefits of present salvation. That is, that they knew Christ in a way that allowed them to escape the defilements of the world. But then, because of the, their love of the world, they turned back to the world and were overcome, losing the benefits of salvation that they once enjoyed, thus forfeiting their future salvation. There's no indication that God has changed his mind with respect to these false teachers, if anything, Uh, Peter refers to the fact that their their outcome has been prepared for them from long ago. Instead, it's the false teachers who have changed their minds, having turned back to their old way. As Peter ends with the vivid proverb in verse 22, as a dog returns to its own vomit. 1 John 2 says this of false teachers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, these false teachers, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us, and so these people. Uh, the, the the last thing that I'll say about that first thing is that often we conflate, uh, and forgive me for this quick explanation. Often we conflate the terms election and salvation; they're not the same thing uh, in the Bible, and so we must address them separately. And here Peter teaches that these false teachers experience real benefits of salvation, and then they fall away because of their neglect. That's for the first teaching. With respect to the second teaching, that the punishment for those who once knew the way of righteousness but then turned back from it will be worse than if they had not known it all. It's clear in this passage that Peter teaches a gradation of judgment. That the that the crime committed by these false teachers is particularly heinous. Not only did they despise God and 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 uh and deny the name of Jesus, but they also led others astray and they brought reproach upon the whole church. Because of this particularly heinous crime, God has reserved a particularly harsh judgment for them. And now to turn uh, to what I believe Peter has intended us to come away from these warnings with. Uh, Let me say this. First, Peter is warning us about these things. He's warning us about these false teachers. He's pointing out that we are actually responsible for the knowledge that God gives us, for what God reveals to us. Peter is giving us these warnings so that these things that happen to false teachers do not happen to us. It's clear that Peter's intention, chapter 1, verse 15, Peter says, I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter wants the church to be fully established in the truth, and so it should be no surprise that Peter gives particularly vivid descriptions of false teachers and the outcome. Of their way of life. Peter's goal is this he wants to communicate that we have a part to play in preventing this from happening. We have a part to play in weeding out and avoiding the teaching of false teachers. You must supplement your faith with a virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, etc. You must remember the teaching of the apostles, as Peter makes clear in chapter 1. You must flee from the enticing temptations of sensuality and greed, and when you don't, you must repent and ask God for forgiveness and healing and strength. If you don't, if you neglect your salvation, then falling away is a real possibility. Can, Can you be confident that you are truly saved? Can we have confidence in our salvation? Absolutely. There's a number of things that happen throughout the Bible but let me frame it in the form of a couple of questions. Paul says, remember your baptism in the day you first believe. Can you give thanks for that moment? Are you repentant today? Do you hate your sin even though it is present? Are you growing in the virtues that Peter listed out? If, if yes to any of those questions, then take heart. That's what Peter is saying to us. See, when Peter writes in verse one, That these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, this is incredibly important. By their life and teachings, these false teachers are denying the master who bought them. And let's not miss what this is actually saying. Today, this could mean a variety of things. It could mean redefining Jesus. It could mean saying, you know what, that's not the Jesus I believe in. That's not the God I believe in. Right? But... I think that this is primarily an ethical claim, not an intellectual one. Chances are these false teachers weren't going into churches saying, hey, guess what? Jesus isn't Savior. Right? Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Chances are these false teachers weren't making intellectual claims about, about God. This was a primarily an ethical claim. Instead, they are denying Jesus with their way of life. Jesus' command was simple. Simple. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's clear that these teachers are instead clinging to themselves and their desires and they are doing so boldly and willfully. Jesus demands that his followers lay down our lives. And it makes sense why he demands this. It's when we rely on the Lord that we live humbly, self-sacrificially and counterculturally. It's when we rely on ourselves and getting what we want, that we act selfishly and manipulatively, no differently from the outside world. Peter is saying, practice what you know, Don't simply assent to intellectual truths, right? Practice what you know, you must know God, but you must also give him everything and lay down your life and follow him. It's clear that the false teachers didn't do that. They gave into their sensuality and greed, but as James says, While works without faith are useless, if you try to earn your salvation by doing good works, then you will fail. He also said that faith without works is dead. And so if you say that you're saved and you're not living a life of good works, then I would be remiss if I didn't tell you, friend, I don't think you believe in God like you think you believe in God. When you look at your life over the past week or month or year, have you denied yourself in order to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Have you surrendered your all to Jesus? There's probably no one in this room who will be able to answer that question without struggling because no one in this room has died yet. Jesus and God are not done with us. We have not completed our sanctification. We haven't been made perfectly into the image of Christ. And so there's no one in this room who could answer that question without struggling. But if you struggle to answer that question, then let me ask you this, do you care? Do you care about your sin, and are you growing in the ways of the Lord? You see, Peter, in, in making this claim about the, the false teachers denying Christ, he's making primarily an ethical claim, which means he's saying, look at their lives. Don't listen to what they're saying. Just look at their lives, and you'll know them. Similarly, we can take that as, ex, as, as an encouragement ethically too. God does not just expect us to have confidence because we convince ourselves that we are saved. God wants to give us great confidence. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and so forth, and so on, because if these are yours, if these fruits are yours, and they're increasing, they keep you from being unfruitful. Have a look at that and be confident. Look at your life. Look at your ethics. There is a clear call in this passage to take heed lest you fall. We must not avoid this clear exhortation, this clear teaching that Peter gives us, but He's not the teacher sitting behind the desk saying, you better study because who knows how hard this test is going to be for you. No, that's not the picture that we get at all. Peter knows exactly how hard this test is going to be, and he already knows the outcome. In the middle of this chapter, as I move to close, the question is, how do we then live in the way of Christ? In the middle of this chapter, verses 4 through 9, Peter gives a series of stories that are kind of complicated to, to follow through. Um, He tells a story about how God did not spare angels when they sinned. He then moves on to talk about Noah and how all of the earth was judged, but Noah and his family were preserved. And then he tells the story of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of those cities, and how God preserved Lot, basically dragged Lot kicking and and screaming out of the city before he destroyed it. He tells these three stories, and it's a bit, like I said, Peter seems like he's rambling and really trying to get at something. But when you get to the end, you see that the word for... Bear with me. You see the word for that begins verse four gets resolved in the then that begins verse nine. For if God rescued Noah, if God rescued Lot, Peter shares these stories to make this point. When I look at all those stories, then verse nine, I can conclude that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from their trials. Peter says, I look at the past. I look at the way that God's been faithful. And I know that God can and will and is pleased to rescue the godly in their trials. And how? This is a rich promise that Peter gives us. First, it shows us that God's able to rescue us from the final day of judgment upon Jesus' return. Carlos is gonna talk about that next week. The second thing is that we know that the faithful are empowered to live faithful lives with real power against sin to choose what is good and what is right. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16, describe Jesus this way. It says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every way as we have been, yet without sin. Therefore, we get to draw near to him, near to his throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Because Jesus has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, he is there ready to extend help when we ask. Listen to this truth. The Apostle Paul teaches, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, we must accept our sin, but we must never accept our sins. We must accept our sin. We must accept our need for God and God's mercy, but we must never accept our sins. There is no sin, there is no temptation that you can't say no to according to what Paul says. There is no sin that you have to say yes to, that you have to give yourself the excuse, Ah oh, man, I was just bound to do it. This gives us a very high view of our sin and illuminates our need of God, that every single sin that we commit is intentional. But as Peter said, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. You will never be tempted by anything beyond your ability. And Christ is with you always to extend mercy and to provide grace to help in your time of need. And so how do we live in the way of Christ? Live with your eyes fixed on Christ. Live with your eyes fixed on Christ. There's a story about a man named Charles Spurgeon. You might have heard his name, a great Baptist preacher, uh, the 1900s, or for the 1800s. He was a phenomenal preacher, and he struggled with depression for most of his career. I can't quote the story exactly, but he, he wrestled with this. Um, and he wondered. Uh, And he said that if he ever found himself doubting his salvation, he would discern whether he was sorry for for his sin and take that as great encouragement, right? If he felt sorry for his sin, that he would take that as great encouragement. If he found that he were, if he were ever to discover that he wasn't sorry for his sin and that fact would strike him with fear, then he would remember what he preached every Sunday, that today is the day of salvation. That if everything up until now has been a fraud, today I can repent and come to the Lord and experience forgiveness over my sins. And so if you wrestle with this, if you wrestle with confidence and salvation, if you wrestle with fighting your sin, know that God is with you and God is for you. The only sacrifice that God requires is a broken and contrite heart to come to him and ask for repentance and forgiveness. Let me read this, Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, There it is. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. If someone isn't confident in salvation, then I don't know what is. Fix your eyes on Jesus and trust in his power with you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these words and not just understand them intellectually, Lord, but help us, Lord, to apply these words ethically, to apply them to our actual lives, the decisions that we're gonna make in about half an hour, the decisions that we're gonna make tonight at bedtime. Be with us, Lord. Teach us the truth. Let us not fall prey to any false teaching that tells us that we cannot fight our sin and temptation. Help us not to be okay with it, but help us to cling to you and pursue you. Make every effort to supplement our faith with all those things that Peter talks about so that we might have confidence. Help us to love one another well to not just be a people who encourage one another but also people who rebuke and call one another to repentance but help us to do so while boldly help us to do so graciously and lovingly and gently as a brother to a brother as a sister to a sister as a father to a son. God, thank you for this morning. Be glorified. I pray that if any any words that I shared this morning were not pleasing to you I pray that you would omit them from our memories. And if you won't do that, I pray that you would illuminate them for falsehood, if that's true. I pray that you would teach us what you would have us to know, that you would glorify yourself in our hearts, that you would help us, Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.